Hello and happy Easter, Reality Family. If I haven't had the privilege of meeting you, especially in person, thank you so much for joining us. My name is John, and I'm very honored to be bringing God's Word to us this morning. We are going to be looking at Mark chapter 15 and 16, so if you have a Bible, I encourage you to grab it, and uh, we'll turn there in a second. Um, we have been in a series in the Gospel of Mark in the last 11 weeks, and I want to just remind us before we read the scripture of what we talked about last week, where we saw Jesus on the cross, and the sky above him is dark, as it symbolizes these dark forces that are in control and over our world. We saw Jesus cry out that he's abandoned by God, and in the last moments as he dies, the centurion says, surely this man was the son of God. He makes this proclamation we've been waiting for the whole gospel of Mark. We've heard God say that about Jesus. And we heard Mark in the first uh, sentence of, of the gospel of Mark say this about Jesus, that he is the son of God. And now we see it on the mouth, in the mouth of this centurion, this Roman soldier who has just killed Jesus. So that's where we ended off last week. Jesus is dead. And we're going to pick up in verse chapter 15, verse 42. When it was already evening, because it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the Sanhedrin, who was himself looking forward to the kingdom of God, came and boldly went to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Pilate was surprised that he was already dead. Summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he had already died. This is most likely the same centurion that uh, made this proclamation about Jesus just a few verses earlier. When he found out from the centurion, he gave the corpse to Joseph. After he bought some linen cloth, Joseph took him down and wrapped him in the linen. Then he laid him in a tomb, cut out of the rock, and rolled a stone against the entrance to the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, were watching where he was laid. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they could go and anoint him. Very early in the morning, on the first day of the week, they went to the tomb at sunrise. They were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone from the entrance to the tomb for us? Looking up, they noticed that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. When they entered the tomb, they saw a young man, dressed in white robes, sitting on the right side. They were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he told them. You are looking for Jesus of Nazareth, who is crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they put him. But go, tell the disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you to Galilee. You will see him there, just as he told you. This is God's word. Well, Easter is one of these very important times in the uh, church calendar. And depending on uh, if and where you went to church uh, growing up, or how long you've been part of Reality's church family, uh, we have celebrated Easter in many different ways. Um, most regularly, I would say it starts with Ash Wednesday, which is 40 days before today, uh, where we um, start our preparations for Easter with prayer and fasting. And then we spend the next season, which is called Lent. We usually give some things up as we prepare ourselves, as Jesus has called his disciples to do, to deny themselves, uh, to prepare ourselves to come and, and uh, look at the crucifixion, the death of Jesus and his resurrection. And then this last week is, is Holy Week. Uh, and uh, this past week, we partnered with several churches from the downtown east side to put on an art exhibit. I hope you had a chance to go take that in. And then we, uh, that culminated on Good Friday, where we focused on the death of Jesus uh, with an online gathering with those churches and going through that space together. 
And then today is Easter Sunday. Some traditions do Easter Monday where we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. And of course, the text that I just read is one of the classic texts from one of the four Gospels where it focuses on the resurrection of Jesus. And I want to just say, you know, this year especially, uh, as we have had kind of the um, restrictions change on us a few times with this cracking of the door open that maybe we would be able to meet and then it was kind of sort of closed and then it was fully shut. Um, I, I am very much missing the opportunity to gather with uh, our church family and to celebrate Jesus' death and resurrection together, um, especially, um, yeah, just not being able to be together this year. And so I just say that as I was focusing and praying that I really am feeling that way and you, and you definitely will be missed. And I'm looking forward to the time when we'll be able to um, meet together in a safe way. Um, but while we celebrate Easter today, and uh, we celebrate with the church worldwide and the church of history, I think that uh, for many of us, during the rest of the year, we kind of tend to forget about the resurrection of Jesus. And when we think about the gospel, and we think about Jesus and, and it's him, his impact on our lives, we really focus almost exclusively on his death. And even though we celebrate all of Easter, we celebrate Easter Sunday, uh, for us practically, uh, really all that carries on is Good Friday, the death of Jesus. And I've said, I've said this previously, the reason I think that we do this is because out of the whole song of the gospel that's in the Bible, we tend to just play one chord. We try to just stay there, which is that Jesus died for my sins. And so we might agree that he was resurrected, we might celebrate it together, but it almost has no bearing on our lives because really the, the central thing that we need to know is that Jesus died for our sins. But this is a problem for two reasons. The first is that it seems to me from the reading of the Gospels and the New Testament that the Gospel writers really put an emphasis or the New Testament writers really put an emphasis on the resurrection of Jesus. Not only is it uh, an ultimate moment in all four of the Gospels, but it's, it's also littered throughout the rest of the New Testament, the importance of the resurrection. Let me just give you one example from 1 Corinthians 15, uh, from the words of Paul. He says this, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. If there's no resurrection, our faith is worth absolutely nothing. And you are still in your sins. And this is a very interesting statement. That, uh, as we said, we, we often uh, equate the forgiveness of sins with Jesus' death. But Paul is actually saying there's something in the resurrection here. That if the resurrection hasn't happened, we are still stuck in our sins. Maybe showing us that we have an incomplete version when we think of what Jesus came to do. Paul continues in verse 19. If we put our hope in Christ only for this life, we should be pitied more than anyone. Maybe one of those frightening passages in the Bible, both for the way that our lives should look, but also um, just to think that, that, that this should be, our hope should so much be in this resurrection of Jesus, uh, that, that, if the, that if it didn't happen, we would be pitied more than anyone else. And this is just one of the many passages in the New Testament that talk about the importance of the resurrection, that we, our faith would be worthless, that we would still be stuck in our sins, and we should be pitied more than anyone else if Jesus has not been raised from the dead. So that's the theological issue, uh, but there's also a very practical reason why I think the resurrection is important. It's because it's integral to experiencing the kind of Christian life that we read about in the scripture. And like I said a minute ago, most of us tell a truncated story of what the gospel is. And it goes something like this, that we have a sin problem. And because of that problem, we have a penalty to pay in front of God. And, and ultimately that penalty is death. 
and we might say hell as well. And so we're guilty in front of this God and we have this sin penalty hanging over us. And Jesus comes to take that penalty from us. He dies uh, in order that we could live. He pays the penalty for our sins. And so we don't have to die anymore because Jesus has died for us. And instead of going to hell, we now get to go to heaven. Now, there is a a, a kernel or a part of truth in this story. It's definitely in the Bible. And if you pull on the narrative of scripture, it's definitely one of the threads in there. But when we tell the story of Jesus only in this way, only in this way, focusing only on his death, we lose a vision for what life looks like as a Christian now. What am I supposed to be doing now? And many critics would say this is the problem with the Western church, that we focused on heaven and this payment of sins, almost the exclusivity of what we're supposed to do now. I've mentioned this before, but Dallas Willard, someone I respect a lot, says he calls this the barcode faith, that we're just concerned whether we have the barcode that when we get to heaven, we're going to get in or not. That's all that matters. And this will net out on us being thankful people. You know, we're thankful that that Jesus has died for our sins, but rarely will it translate into a passionate pursuit of Jesus now and a living out of his kingdom here on earth. And so we might believe in Jesus, but our lives also in this moment, in this time, in the in-between of being forgiven and going to heaven, as we might say in that story, will become consumed with other things, with other gods, and other saviors. We'll get wrapped up and identify with other stories and be consumed with visions of the good life for the here and now. And so we lack the vision if we don't focus on the resurrection and what that means for our bodies now that Jesus was bodily resurrected. We lack the vision for what it means to live a life of faith today. We also lack the power to live the life that we think we're supposed to live. You know, many of us still believe that gospel story or we've heard that gospel story and we we also understand and know that we're supposed to follow Jesus and become like him. But 5, 10, 15, 20, 25 years later, our lives still strikingly look more like John than they do like Jesus. And and the Christian life then can can feel hopeless. It can feel kind of like a bait and switch. It can feel like we're consistently failing because there's no power in our lives to live this kind of life. And we want to be passionate about Jesus. It's not like we don't. And we might watch, you know, these videos of people like worship music or something like that, where they've got their hands raised and their eyes closed. And it looks like they're just so into Jesus and into the moment. We say we want that, but it's just foreign to our everyday life with Jesus because we lack the power to live that kind of life because we haven't really taken the, the, the view of what the resurrection means into our lives. And finally, we lack the vital relationship with God that might mobilize this kind of life with Jesus. This telling of the gospel story that I had a sin problem, but Jesus is taking care of it, means that I'm free to go. And again, there is, a, there is truth to that. But the Bible is also really clear that we are actually free not to just to go, but we are actually free to come. We are free to come into the presence of God and be remade and re-engaged in what it means to be human. And so if we don't share in that story, this resurrection story, this story about life now, then we will um, not have the relationship with God, the relational equity in order to carry out his mandate. And we won't have the experience of God in our day-to-day, moment-by-moment lives. And I say this not only because, like I said, people have critiqued the Western church for this perspective, but this has also been my own experience. I've experienced each of these things, the lack of a vision, Uh, the lack of the power, and uh, all of these lacks in my own life. And as I talk to more people, 
I know that you are experiencing many of these things too. We believe in Jesus, but we're unmoved and we're unsure of how to make those beliefs real in our everyday life. And so I think that one of the things that's very important about Easter is that we get to focus on this perspective of the resurrection. And we're able to tell a more complete story of what Jesus did, what the gospel is, and what it means to believe in Jesus in the here and now, and recapture the centrality and the essence of the gospel for us today. And so three things I want to look at this morning that'll help us do that, I hope, which is that in the resurrection of Jesus, we receive life, hope, and participation. Life, hope, and participation. So the first, life. The resurrection shows us that because Jesus is alive, we are also offered new life. One of the titles that's really important in the Gospel of Mark is that Jesus is Jesus Christ. And this word is the Greek translation of a Hebrew word, Messiah or Mashiach. And it means the long-awaited or royal figure. Um, It's the anointed one who would come and liberate God's people. And beyond the definition of this word, as we've looked at before, is also that the, the Messiah was a representative of the people of Israel. Whatever was true of the Messiah would also be true of God's people. And so if the Messiah was winning, you know, if he had showed up and he was winning, he was conquering, then the people would feel like they were winning too. If the Messiah had come and he had liberated Israel and he was reigning and ruling from Jerusalem, then Israel would also feel like they had regained their place as the top nation in the world. And so the identity of the people is wrapped up in this Messiah figure. Their hopes, you might say, are in him because Whatever happens to him, whatever he gains, they also gain as well. Now, this might seem like a bit of an odd or an old-fashioned way of thinking about things, but I think it's actually more true in our day and age than we might think of it. The more that we identify with someone or with something, the more that we experience the highs and lows of that thing as well. So, for example, great stories do this to us. They help us identify with characters so that we feel not only the joys that they feel, but the pains that they feel as well. We get wrapped up and we identify with them. And so we experience their story in our lives. You know, one of my favorite books that I've read in the past few months is a book called Shuggy Bane. Uh, It's written, uh, set in Glasgow, Scotland. um, And it's a semi-autobiographical story of a little boy growing up in the 1980s in Glasgow. And his mom is an alcoholic. And so really a lot of the story is just the ups and downs of her struggle with alcohol. Because of uh, um, you know her alcoholism, she, he has a series of, of men and father figures that kind of come in and out of his life. He moves all over the place. And uh, also he is struggling with his sexuality. He's gay uh, in a time that it was very, very difficult and looked down on to be gay. And so he's struggling through that. And it's just um, heart-wrenching through the whole story, all of these things mixed in together. Now, I want to say that none of those things are actually true of my personal biography. I've never been to Scotland. I'd love to go if you have an extra ticket once the uh, pandemic is over. Um, I'm probably more of a 90s kid than an 80s kid. Uh, My mother never had a drop of alcohol, I think, the whole time that I was growing up. My parents were together and still are together. It was a a very consistent uh, home story that I have. And I'm straight. Uh, I'm not gay. And so I don't actually biographically identify with any, almost anything that this little boy is going through. But because the story was so well written, in fact, it won the Booker Prize in 2020, 
I end up identifying with this little boy in amazing ways as I'm reading the story. And as he experiences the different things that he does, as his mother tells him that she's going to try to be sober, I experience the hopes that he has in his heart and the, the love that he has for his mother and just leaning on her so deeply and hoping that she'll become sober. And in the moments where he's hurt, I experience those as well in reading the book. When he comes home and he experiences his mom passed out or as he's standing outside the door as she's having one of her fits, afraid to go in, even though I've never experienced that myself, I experience it through the story and my identification with him or just the hopelessness that pervades. It's just a bleak, a bit of a bleak story. Um, and, uh, and I experienced that as I read the book. I felt it too. And I identified with him because I gave the book my attention. I sat down and over many nights I read this book and I got wrapped up in the story as I did so. And I sh so I, because of that, I shared in his life. I shared in the highs that he had, the moments where he would make a friend or his mom would be sober and the lows that he had as well, where he was abandoned and forgotten. And this is uh, like all good stories, but maybe, you know, you might say, I, uh, you, I don't, you don't read as much as, as I do. That's okay. I think this is true in, in other areas of our lives too. This is true in sports for me. Like I said, I grew up in Northern Alberta in the 80s and 90s, and um, that was the glory years of the Edmonton Oilers. So I was a huge fan, my dad was a fan, I became a fan, and that was the glory years when they won all those cups. So it was a great time to be an Oilers fan. I still remember crying the day that they traded Wayne Gretzky. You know, I'd never met him, but he, he was crying when he was traded, so I felt that uh, it was okay for me to cry too. And then the next you know, decade was okay. The Oilers were kind of in and out of the playoffs. They were a decent team. They had one magical run in the early 2000s. And so it was a great time to be an Oilers fan. But then they entered a period that the Oilers fans call the decade of darkness, kind of early 2000s to mid-2010s, where they were just a terrible team, terrible management, terrible coaching, made terrible decisions with their players. And it was such a hard time to be an Oilers fan. Um, and, uh, and so I experienced the down of that moment too. And then a couple of years ago, they drafted this guy named Connor McDavid, the Messiah of the Oilers. And so experienced the, the rise of that too, and the excitement that that brings to Oilers fans, because I identify with them. And I know if you're a Canucks fan, you can only experience, you, you only really know the decade of darkness moments. Um, so I'm, that's why I'm explaining the whole trajectory of being a, a fan of a real sports team to you. But the point of what I'm saying is my identification with that team, my cheering for them, my consistent watching them is what allows me to share in their glories and in their sadness as well. And the gospel of Mark is making exactly the same claim about Jesus, the Messiah, that we are to identify him with him. That is our, the invitation as Mark consistently puts Jesus out in front of us. He's saying, hear his story. Hear about his life and the kind of person he is. You know, watch this story, his ups and his downs, and take that story as your own. Identify with him. And as you do so, as you see this kind of king who would walk to his death and be lifted up in that way, allow yourself to be humbled, which is really the same thing that the gospel says in so many different ways, to repent, to believe, to run to him, to cry out to him, to see that he is this kind of Jesus to repent and reach out for help and then to follow him. As the Gospel of Mark says, to take up your cross and follow him. That we look at him to identify with him, we humble ourselves and then we follow. And in doing that, we identify with him. 
And when we do, when we do identify with him, sorry, we receive everything that he has. His life becomes our life. His death becomes our death. Last week we saw his blessing that he receives at his baptism from God, where he says, you are my, I'm pleased with you. We receive that as well. And the glory that he had in the moments of transfiction becomes our glory too. And the moment that we're looking at today, his resurrection becomes our resurrection too. Because he gets new life, we get new life. What's true of the Messiah is true for those of us who follow him. And in the Gospel of Mark and the rest of the New Testament, it's very clear that this is not a one-time process. When we become followers of Jesus, when we take that first step, yes, we receive new life. That's what we um, symbolically practice when we do baptism, that we have died and we are raised again. But it's something that's an ongoing process as well. It was something we need to keep experiencing in order to have this new life in us. You know, I, I read the book Shuggy Bane three months ago or two months ago. I've, pro- I've forgotten a lot of the details. I probably won't read this book again. And therefore, it will slowly just disappear over time. My identification with that character will go away. But the Oilers, I watch them several times a week. And so my identification with them is only growing because I am continually practicing identification with them. And the same is true about us with Jesus, that we are called to this ongoing process of identification and re-identification with him so that our roots grow deeper and his story more becomes ours. His death and resurrection and his life that he offers more and more becomes ours day by day, moment by moment, that we are in a moment recreated as the gospel says, but that we are continually being recreated. That, um, the, uh, as, as Paul says in Romans, that the power that was at work in raising Jesus from the dead is at work within us in our lives every day. And so that happens so that we, in our identification with him, and here's the thing, as we identify with him, as we become more, more like him, and as we do that in a continual way, that he will become, we will become more like him too. And his truth will become more evident in us and the world will see us. So as we identify with Jesus, the gospel, as the gospel writer Mark might say, pick up our cross and follow him. We experience new life because all that the Messiah has is ours and when we identify with him. So that's the first thing, that we experience new life in the resurrection of Jesus. The second is this, because Jesus is alive, there's hope. There's hope for you and I. On the cross, we see Jesus utter these words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he's crying them out in this moment of desperation and abandonment. But these words on Jesus' lips are actually a quote from Psalm 22. And it's a psalm that starts in lament. I want to read it for us. It says, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Why are you so far from my deliverance and from my words of groaning? My God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. By night, yet I have no rest. Everyone who sees me mocks me. They sneer and shake their heads. He relies on the Lord. Let him save him. Let the Lord rescue him since he takes pleasure in him. I pour it out like water and all my bones are disjointed. My heart is like wax melting within me. My strength is dried up like baked clay. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You put me into the dust of death for dogs have surrounded me. A gang of evildoers has closed in on me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. People look and stare at me. They divided my garments among themselves 
and they cast lots for my clothes. And you can hear some very close echoes of the cross, almost like a prophecy of what will happen to Jesus as he is abandoned and mocked and his clothes are auctioned off and his body is broken. Yet in verse 19, the psalm turns. So the first half is this lament of a person who is broken and abandoned. But in verse 19, we hear a turn. It says, but you, Lord, don't be far away. My strength, come quickly to help me. Rescue my life from the sword, my only life from the power of these dogs. Save me from the lion's mouth, from the horns of wild oxen. In this key verse, you answered me. So I will proclaim your name to my brothers and sisters. I will praise you in the assembly. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. All you descendants of Israel, revere him. For he has not despised or abhorred the torment of the oppressed. He did not hide his face from him, but listened when he cried to him for help. I will give praise in the assembly because of you. I will fulfill my vows before those who fear you. The humble will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. So we see this pattern of this lament, this going down, this sadness, this brokenness, this torment to death, but then also this moment where God answers and now becomes a moment of praise and of glory. And Jesus' death and resurrection is a reenactment of this psalm. It's, it's the psalm lived out in real life. And there's this moment that we've seen on the cross of Jesus where he, uh, the dark forces are over him and he's crying out and people are mocking him and tormenting him and it ends ultimately in his death. But it's followed very shortly by this announcement that death couldn't hold him, that Jesus has been rescued and not abandoned, that God has answered, as the psalm says, and he is risen and that God is stronger than the dark forces in our world and that our king lives and his kingdom will carry on. And that means for each of us that there is hope, just like there was hope for the psalmist, there is hope for Jesus, that there is hope for each one of us too. That when we find ourselves in these moments of lament, which will surely come in our lives, where we're crying out in the darkness and we're suffering on the path of downward mobility, that we can have hope. Hope that suffering is only momentary. That in the resurrection, we're reminded that in the, in the midst of suffering, we can remember that glory is just around the corner because Jesus has been raised from the dead and the tomb is empty. And that suffering has a purpose. You know, Jesus does promise, it's one of the few things he promises, that we will have suffering in this life. And he invites us to walk this path of downward mobility, which of course will be a path of suffering. So it's, it's natural that our, our lives will also involve a bunch of lament, where we're crying out to God on our behalf or on the behalf of other people. But this psalm teaches us that we can even learn to rejoice in those moments. Not because our circumstances are great or because there's no injustice left in the world or because we're living our best life now. But we can learn to praise when we identify with the Jesus who has been raised from the dead. That God has answered in Jesus, just like he did in this psalm. The psalmist says, he has answered me. That God has given us his answer to suffering in Jesus that we're liberated from the dark forces of the world, that we are called back into God's presence, that we're free from the curse, and that we're recreated as humans and then sent back out into the human vocation of representing God into the world. So the resurrection is a cause for hope because Jesus is alive. 
And I say this especially for those of us who are feeling like the Christian life hasn't been all it's been talked up to be. If Jesus is alive, there's always hope, but it's not a hope that your life will always be great, that you'll get to live a middle-class life or even, as I said a couple weeks ago, just a comfortable life. Rather, it's, it's the hope that there's always an opportunity for praise that God has answered, even amidst suffering and confusion and brokenness. Not because our circumstances are great, but because he is risen. And the tomb is empty, therefore, there's hope. And so in the resurrection of Jesus, there's life. In the resurrection of Jesus, there's hope for us. And finally, in the resurrection of Jesus, we are invited to participate in the kingdom of God. You know, when Jesus died, everyone thought that the kingdom project was over. In fact, there had been several messiahs in just recent uh, um, Israel history that had come, that had promised, that people were excited about, and then they had died, and all of their followers had been scattered. So this was nothing new that uh, their messiah figures would die. But when Jesus is resurrected, it means that the kingdom that he is bringing uh, is not over, but it's continuing on. His kingdom project has not stopped. And just like the Gospel of Mark starts with an announcement of this king, and the kingdom that he is bringing. These women uh, that we see at the end are also mobilized to go and tell his story, to, to carry on that tradition of talking about their king, proclaiming him, and proclaiming that uh, his kingdom is coming. To go and tell, to do what Jesus did, to confront people who need healing or come to them, to meet people on the path of downward mobility, and to walk the path of suffering just as King Jesus did. And in entrusting them with the good news, Mark is also completing the the path or the pattern of Psalm 22. So we saw it's a psalm that starts with lament. And then it says God answers that there's salvation. But then there's this proclamation. I don't know if you noticed that when we were reading, but it's proclamation to God's people that he has answered and that he will answer even in the darkest moments of life. But it finishes like this, Psalm 22, starting in verse 27. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations will bow down before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord. He rules the nations. All who prosper on earth will eat and bow down. All those who go down to the dust will kneel before him, even the one who cannot preserve his life. Their descendants will serve him. The next generation will be told about the Lord. They will come and declare his righteousness to a people yet to be born. They will declare what he has done. And so God is calling, just like he calls the psalmist, or the psalmist says that he will proclaim God, both to people he's inside the family of God. He's saying, I also proclaim God to those outside the family of God. And and Jesus, or the angel in the gospel of Mark, is also inviting these women to do the same thing. And that's what we are called to do as well. It's the call back to what it means to be human in the Bible. If you remember, we are people who are called to be with God and also to reflect him into our world. And so the resurrection, through the resurrection of Jesus, we are reinvited in that call to become human, to be uncursed, to be freed, to be welcomed into the presence of God, to be recreated and then to be sent out with the good news of Jesus, that he is the Messiah who is alive and reigning, that he is the tomb is empty and he is alive amongst us. And we, when we identify with Jesus and experience his life and his hope, participation in the mission of Jesus becomes easier or becomes more natural. Sorry, I shouldn't say easy, 
Uh, it is always something that's difficult to do to figure out how to explain that in our world today. But just like talking about books, something I love to do, or just like talking about the Oilers, when we've identified with him, when we've experienced and taken his story to be our own, his life, and we've experienced the hope that he offers when we walk the path of suffering, we will be mobilized and motivated then to take the good news to those around us. As some of the apostles, the apostles say in, the, in, the, um, in Acts, they say we can't help but speak of what Jesus is doing in our lives. And so this is the good news of Resurrection Sunday. And it's the good news of the Christian life. And it's what we remind ourselves of on this special day in Easter, but it's also what we gather to do to remind ourselves of every week, that we rehearse this story, that we remember the good news of who Jesus is, that if we're with him, that we identify with him, if he is our Messiah, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, then everything that's true of him is true of us. And we have new life, we have hope, and we're resent out, recreated in the human mission. Let's close in prayer. God, we thank you for this truth. We thank you for the good news and hope that this brings to us. And in a year that's been a very difficult one, um, and one and devoid of hope, I pray that you would help us not to take on the, the hopes uh, of everything else that's around us or false hopes that we might have, not to put our ultimate allegiance there, but instead to put our hope in this resurrection truth, that you would, by your grace and our identification with you, that we would experience the life that you have. Would you recreate us to be your people? Would you give us your hope for those of us who are in moments where we're just in the dark, we're feeling like the psalmist is, we're abandoned alone, would you meet us in that place? Would you answer us? Would you show us how Jesus is that answer? And would you turn our laments into mourning or into a praise? And we pray as well that those praises would echo out from our lives, that we would be people who are sent out to tell the good news, to join with what Jesus has done, what the gospel writer Mark has done, what these women do. We would join in by telling others about you, that it would just come out of our lives as we identify with you together. So as we sing now, as we give of our finances and of our time, um, and as we connect with one another, we pray that you would make these things continually true in our lives individually and in our body. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.